You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we're looking together at chapter 12. You'll find this on page 920 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 19. Hear the word of God. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Well, as we knew from before, seeking to curry favor with the Jews, Herod Agrippa was persecuting the church. And this Herod, you'll remember, was the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the ruler at Christ's birth. He had already executed James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. And now Peter was in prison, waiting to meet the same fate after Passover. Four squads of four soldiers each kept watch. It was a maximum security situation. Herod did not want anything to go wrong with the trial or the execution, because Roman law required that if soldiers allowed the prisoner to escape, they would be executed. 
So the soldiers had a vested interest in keeping him as secure as possible, along with Herod. The response of the church was to go collectively to God in prayer. Together at the throne of grace, they began to intercede for Peter. So on the one side, you have the mighty power of Rome. And on the other side, you had the earnest prayers of the church. Two different kingdoms arrayed against one another. Each of them having their leaders and each of them having their respective weapons. Rome had the power of the sword. The church had the power of prayer. And try as he might, Herod could not withstand the power of prayer. Through those petitions of his people, God would intervene and deliver the apostle. And here Luke gives you and I a detailed account of Peter's escape from prison. It's an amazing thing. And what's noteworthy, I think, is the fact that Peter was in prison sleeping peacefully. <laughs> On the eve of his capital trial and execution, the apostle was asleep. I don't know about you, but most likely I would not be sleeping in that situation. The Lord Jesus had predicted Peter's death, that he would die as a martyr. Remember John 21? He said, when you are old, Peter, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And that prophecy would most likely be fulfilled the very next day. But Peter was, such, was at such a point in his walk with the Lord that he trusted him and was at peace. He showed no sign of anxiety, no indication that he was alarmed at all. And I'm reminded of Psalm 4, verse 8, where it says this, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You know, one of the stories about Jesus that I am always amazed by was when he was asleep in the boat. Do you remember that one? They were crossing the Sea of Galilee, and this violent storm descends upon the sea, which I guess happens frequently there. Great waves are beating against this boat, and it appeared as if the boat was sinking. And the experienced fishermen on board were absolutely terrified. But there was Jesus in the middle of the storm, sound asleep in the back of the boat. And when they woke him, he calmed the storm with a mere word, like he was speaking to a little dog. Quiet. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And I'm sure on many occasions, if Jesus was here, he would say the same thing to me. Why are you so afraid? Have I not told you that I would care for you? And if Jesus Christ says something, we better believe that he means it. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Peter knew this and he believed it and he lived as if he really embraced it. And I wonder if there's someone here like me who has yet to fully grasp that truth. Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared and stood next to Peter. And what's more, he said the prison cell was filled with angelic radiance. And so often in scripture, when angels come into sight, they shine brightly. And yet the guards 
shockingly, did not notice because they had to be asleep. And the angel had to kick Peter in the side to convince him to get up. And when he did so, it says the chains fell off. He got dressed, follows the angel out, and there is no use trying to give a naturalistic explanation to what happened here. They'll try. How do chains simply fall off? How do 16 guards, at the very least, stay asleep all at the same time? This was a supernatural occurrence in which God intervened with his divine power. And note, he's working through the earnest prayers of his believing church. Don't think that our prayers are in vain. If we are earnest, our prayers are greatly used. One of the benefits, I think, from the death of Christ is what we often call here a blood-bought privilege. Blood-bought. Because God cannot and God will not permit an unpardoned sinner to draw near to his holy presence. We have to understand that. The distance, as I said earlier, between us and God because of our sin is so great that we could have no access into his presence without some type of mediator. So that's why we, call, we always offer prayer in the name of Christ. He makes our prayers acceptable. He says in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Did you hear that last part? Whatever you ask in my name, this I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So if you and I don't pray in Jesus' name, do you hear what he's saying? We're robbing the Father of his glory. My friends, please remember always to pray in the name of Jesus. Not by the bare mentioning of his name, but by drawing our hope of acceptance in prayer from him. That's why we can come before the Lord. And the scriptures contain many exhortations for us to be engaged in prayer. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And this was one of the great themes of the Apostle Paul's life. He was a man of prayer. He said, without ceasing, I mention you Romans in my prayers. He told the Thessalonians that constantly I mention you in my prayers. He remembered Timothy constantly in prayer, day and night, 2 Timothy 1. And so this was the apostolic pattern which simply imitated the example of the Lord Jesus, praying. And God is pleased to work through prayer. I hope you know that. He gives us the privilege of teamwork. And perhaps Peter was a bit groggy because he thought he was seeing a vision. It was a dream, of course. Chains falling, iron bars opening, guards staying asleep. In amazement, through corridor after corridor, Peter follows the angel. Heavy gates opening automatically. And as this angel led on, nobody noticed them. 
And when they got to the street, the angel disappeared, leaving Peter alone. And it was then that he came to himself, realizing this is not a dream. God had sent his angel, which should come as no surprise because scripture says that God dispatches them for us. Hebrews 1, you're familiar with the passage referring to angels. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so you and I rob ourselves of comfort by ignoring these lofty creatures. They are spirits. They're immortal. Holy. They excel in knowledge. They're mighty in power. And God employs them in ministering to the disciples of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an encouragement? We have powerful, invisible friends. You remember Elisha? He asked God to show his servant that great host of angels sent to protect them in 2 Kings 6. And as those angels report back to King Jesus, I'm convinced that the departed saints hear what they report. Those saints reign with Christ on high, and they are interested in the kingdom. Don't think for a moment that our loved ones departed are ignoring things on earth. I know they have the beatific vision, but they're priests and kings of God. And would they be kept in the dark about the progress of the kingdom? So the Lord's angel facilitated Peter's escape from maximum security, and we realize that God could have just transferred him to Mary's house if he wanted to. He could have picked him up and put him there in an instant. Didn't he miraculously transport Philip from one place to another? But I think the Lord is wise and gracious to work through the prayers of his people. It's in this way that the church could be greatly encouraged in its petitions. Look what he did for Peter. Their intercession, like our intercession, was the means by which God brings relief. And so under the cover of darkness, the apostle makes his way to the house of Mary, which was John Mark's mother, with whom Peter seemed to be a close friend. And Eusebius, the historian, tells us that Mark's gospel was essentially a record of Peter's teaching. Mark was the apostle Peter's companion, as well as the cousin of Barnabas. And so the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to put into writing the things he heard from Peter. And so Peter gets to Mary's house where many are gathered to pray. And what a contrast Luke draws between these believers and the Jews. From what Peter said in verse 11, the Jews had sided with Herod in condemning Peter and wanting his execution. So while the Jews are celebrating Passover, these early Christians are praying for his release. And is this not the difference between the true church and the nominal church? The nominal church, those who engage in religious duties but have no heart for Christ. They go along with the world, actually. They share the values of the culture. 
That's the nominal church. They honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. These believers had a heart for Christ. They were willing to endure the malice of the world, if need be. And as Peter stood at the door of Mary's house knocking, a young lady named Rhoda came to answer, which she was one of Mary's servants, obviously familiar with the early church. She was praying with the others, and when she came to the gateway door, she recognized Peter's voice. But what's amazing is instead of immediately opening the gate, which is probably what she should have done, she rushes back inside. So overjoyed was she that she simply ran to tell the others what she heard. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. So trembling with emotion, she's reiterating to them what she already heard and said, I heard Peter's voice. He must be standing outside the door. And they said, it's his angel, perhaps a guardian angel. Maybe the one assigned to him. Because you know, the Jews believed in the personal protection of guardian angels. Later, Judaism said that they could even assume the appearance of their charges if they wanted to. And it's all speculation, I know that. However, we do have hints to suggest it. We know that God commands his angels to guard us in all our ways, according to Psalm 91. And Jesus warns against despising these little ones within the church because he says, I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, it's not crucial to believe in guardian angels, but it's comforting, isn't it? Whatever you think about that, it's important to know what angels do. Their ministry is not the care of souls. That's the work of Christ's spirit. The ministry of angels involves the outward help and external relief. Their responsibility is largely to guard the bodily life of believers. They do escort the soul to heaven when we die, but their responsibility is largely to guard the bodily life of believers. The angel gave Elijah food. The angel stirred the waters of Bethesda. The angel opened the prison doors. In our day, they perform their work invisibly. We don't see them. There is this invisible world of spirits, both good and bad, and they're at work. And so the Christians here believed this. They believed in the supernatural, and yet they were surprised by Peter. Isn't that kind of incongruous? It's ironic. They're praying for Peter's release, but they didn't think it could happen. Those believers were sincere, but they had such low expectations you see, it's always easy to affirm the supernatural activity in the abstract. Yes, God works wonders. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, angels are at work. But it's very difficult for us to believe that such things actually happen to us. Hebrews says, some of you have entertained angels unaware. It's happened. Meanwhile, Peter kept knocking, and eventually they let him inside, and they saw him and were amazed. It was true. God answered their prayers. And with utter amazement, they welcomed him inside. 
He motions them to be quiet, and he tells them about God's angel. Chains fell off, gates opened, guards slept, angel disappeared. And he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. God had intervened. And then we find in the brief epilogue what happened to those 16 soldiers. The morning after the escape, there was tremendous commotion. They're confused, dumbfounded. And the two guards still had their wrists chained, but Peter was long gone. And you can only imagine the fear that filled the soldiers at the prison. Herod examined them. They pleaded innocence. It was tragic. He executed them, put them to death. And I think what that does in in part is to teach us to recognize and to appreciate God's infinite wisdom and sovereign grace. And you're telling me, what? How do you get that out? Let me illustrate. Why did he deliver Peter and yet allow the apostle James to be executed? Why did he allow the Roman soldiers to be killed for something they didn't do? Why did he let Herod the Great murder those boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding region? We don't know the answer to those questions. God hasn't revealed it. And there are many mysterious things that unfold in human history, and it's tempting for you and I to get caught up in trying to interpret the mysteries of providence. I don't know why he did that. But that's not something of which any of us have knowledge. God's ways are mysterious. His government of this world can be puzzling. Just look at Ukraine. We read this morning from Psalm 97, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. And so our duty is not to fully understand providence, but to know his word. There are some matters of providence that God may enable us to grasp. For example, we know that natural disasters can serve as a warning to the world. We know that righteousness can exalt a nation. We can see the fruits of that. But our duty, our obligation, our responsibility is to know and study his word. We're told by Moses the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So one of the great aims of Christianity is godly practice, or what the Bible calls the obedience of faith. It's wise to fear God. All who practice this have understanding, says the psalmist. It's why God inspired his word. It is the only rule of faith and practice. And you know something? Man has always wanted to know the secrets of God. In fact, this was a large part of the temptation in the Garden of Eden, right? The serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll know the secrets. Because to know the secret things is to be like God. To usurp his prerogative. 
And I'm amazed at how God often shows his wisdom by his reserve. There are things that you and I don't need to know. There are some things that would be totally unwise for him to reveal, like the day of our death. Can you imagine if you knew? Too much for us to handle. Not knowing helps you and I exercise our faith and to watch and pray, to be ever ready to meet the Lord. So let's leave the secret things to God. Let's focus on Scripture. God's oracles are our only standard of truth. Isaiah tells it this way, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light. His word, this book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is sufficient for our life, our edification, our salvation. Whenever the written word has been laid aside, everything goes astray. Whenever reformation has taken place, it's always in accord with the written word. And the greatest question that faces mankind today is decided by God's word. Do you know what that question is? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? And we answer that not by tradition or philosophy or science or human religion. We answer that by God's revealed word. The apostolic confession was revealed by God. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that answer obtained and understood is only from the pages of scripture. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Where else would you learn something like that? I think Paul's usual practice in evangelizing the Jews is highly significant. It says in Acts 17, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So what did Paul do? He went and as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Unless you and I Ready, or read and study and listen to the word of God, we will not be able to detect error. Unless you and I read, study, and listen to the word, we're not going to be able to give a reason for the hope within us. If we apply ourselves to the word, our souls will be richly blessed and the spirit will teach us about Jesus, whom to know is eternal life. But then secondly, let's learn from this how God may sometimes defer his help. Let's face it, Peter was up against a wall. He was going to be executed. And God sends his angel the night before the execution to deliver him from prison. And God often does it this way. He'll wait until all hope seems to be lost. Isaac carries those things up the mountain He's laid out on whatever it was. Abraham takes the knife. He's ready to plunge it. And it was only then that Christ said, stop. The Egyptians were almost upon Israel. They're backed up to the Red Sea. God parts it, <laughs> takes them through on dry ground. 
And that storm at sea, the disciples cry out to Jesus as they're sinking, and he calms the waters. In deferring deliverance, God strengthens our faith and deludes the forces of evil. I love that. When his enemies think they've prevailed, God snatches victory right from their grip. Sennacherib rejoiced because he thought he had triumphed over Israel. Then he was humble because the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. God's grace is magnified. His glory is visible. So let us never think that his relief is denied simply because it's delayed. Scripture exhorts you and I to wait upon the Lord because he has his own timing. We may grow impatient, but he's infinitely wise and he's absolutely good. He's never too late and he's never too early. His timing is always perfect. And it may be that our troubles and our afflictions go on longer than we would wish, but God has determined to set time for them. When it serves his purpose, he'll remove them. He'll take them away, whether that be in this life or the next. Because you see, my friends, divine mercy is not at our bidding. He is sovereign. That can be scary, but he's also good. Finally, let's learn to offer our prayers with sincere expectation. They prayed for Peter's deliverance, but they didn't expect him to be delivered. Isn't that ironic? And perhaps they prayed for his endurance or his perseverance or such like. Maybe they prayed, thy will be done. But they didn't expect his release. That's shocking to me. How often am I like those early Christians? I pray without expectation. I just go through the motions. James tells us that we should pray with faith and expectation of an answer. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Now, that's harsh. I have to admit. But I didn't write that. Be specific. No rambling. No aimlessness. No mock modesty. Plain, direct. Lord, deliver him from prison. Be earnest, as if your life depended on it. Be confident, not questioning whether or not this is God's will or he's able to do it. Be confident. Lord, you said it, do it, please. Be expectant, fully anticipating an answer from the throne on high. Charles Spurgeon, and I'm almost done. He says, we should be able to count over the mercies before we have got them, believing that they're on the road. We have that wonderful statement of Jesus himself regarding prayer. He says this, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Let's take him at his word. He'll answer as his wisdom deems best. It may not be the way we want, but it certainly will be the way we need. And he'll richly bless praying believers for whom God gave his only son. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Praise you for the way you wisely 
with fatherly care, take care of your children. We're grateful for the privilege of prayer. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has gained for us free and bold access into your presence. And we pray that you'll teach us be more constant and confident and expectant in our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.